what shall be done with a jealous woman? Shocked, aren't you? If you were having the baby, you'd love it. Well, I never wanted it. Richard and I never needed anything else. And now this. How can you say such wicked things? Sometimes the truth is wicked. The starring roles of Jean Tierney long ago revealed her as an incomparable dramatic artist. But in the part of Ellen in Leave Her to Heaven, she gives one of the truly great dramatic performances of our time. Of the devastatingly beautiful Ellen, it was said, she would cheat, lie, deceive, stop at nothing to make the man she loved her exclusive possession. With matchless dramatic power and romantic appeal, Cornell Wilde surpasses all his previous triumphs. As Richard Harlan, he fights his mad desire to marry Ellen. Now look here, Ellen. Darling, will you marry me? Why, you unpredictable little... Lovely Jean Crane discloses new emotional artistry that distinguishes her as one of our most talented actresses. As the gentle half-sister, not even she is spared the venom of Ellen's violent jealousy. What are you running away from? Is it me? Ellen, when we were kids, you used to torment me every way you could think of. You can't do that anymore. Is it Richard? If you must know, I'm going away because I can't stand living in this house any longer. The whole place is filled with hate. Your hate, not hate. Love, Ruth. Richard's love for me. <laughs> John Stahl, Leave Her to Heaven is a rare beast, a film noir done in glorious technicolor. Stunning screen beauty Jean Tierney stars as Ellen Berendt, a young woman who meets an author, Richard Harland, on a train when he sees her reading one of his books. Ellen is attracted to Harland, based mainly on the fact that he looks a lot like her deceased father. They begin a relationship despite the fact that she was recently engaged to another man, an ambitious Boston attorney named Russell Quentin, played by Vincent Price. Quentin begs Ellen not to break off their engagement, mainly because it would hurt his upcoming political campaign. But Ellen jilts Quentin and marries Harland. Harland is intoxicated by Ellen's great beauty and fierce intensity, but to everyone around them it becomes clear that Ellen is pathologically jealous towards anyone else in her new husband's life. She will stop at nothing to have him all to herself. And that is the basic setup to leave her to heaven. Now, Ange, before we get to the, the movie in question, uh, I want to ask you something about Jean Tierney. Okay. Was there ever a better-looking actor than Gene Tierney? And then the sub-question is, was there ever a better-looking human than Gene Tierney? <laughs> uh, you know, it's... Uh, I guess the answer is going to be no. <laughs> okay. I, I am in total agreement with that assessment. You know, I feel like she is just luminous, just... Uh, gorgeous in every scene of every movie that I've seen her in, in every type of outfit that you can be in. So, you know, in this movie, there are scenes of her in like, you know, country girl wear and elegant wear and house robes and every scene you're just like, oh my gosh, she's just, you know, proof that there's a higher power in this universe because, <laughs> you know, chance couldn't make that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she is just impeccably... Uh, gorgeous in this movie and of course the director John Stahl uses that to great effect because she is her character Ellen is kooky cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs in this movie uh, pretty much right from the very beginning 
Uh, I mean, the idea that you would be attracted to someone in a sort of sexual manner because it looks like your father, uh, okay. Uh, and, and, you know, it's pretty clear early on that she is, is you know, that, that, that she's, she's pretty icy. And he, the, the, uh, the uh, Richard Harlan, played by Cornell Wilde, I didn't mention that, playing by Cornell Wilde, he just doesn't see it. And of course he doesn't see it because he's blinded by her unbelievable beauty. He just can't see it, even while everyone else around him, including her own sister, played by uh, Jean Crane, they know that something is deeply, deeply wrong with Ellen, but, but nobody can really see it because she's just so unbelievably gorgeous. And the Technicolor in this movie is just, everything looks like a Life magazine spread. I mean, every image is so gorgeous and so perfect, and her lipstick is like this perfect shade of red, and the scene with her in the, on the boat where she's got the sunglasses. I mean, she is just unbelievable, and so it, it works. You know, you can sort of buy why Cornell Wilde couldn't, it takes him so long to see what's wrong with her. Yeah, and I think they do a very good job in this movie of sort of slowly building up to that. So you hear her talking and you hear her saying things that you're like, well, that's kind of weird. And then it becomes a little bit more obvious at points where she's interacting with people that are taking him away from her just time-wise. And it starts to become a little bit more ominous and a little bit more threatening. And then, of course, by the end of this movie or maybe even the middle of this movie, she's just outright doing evil acts to sort of make sure that he and he alone is with her, that there's no one else with them together. Yeah, I mean, at the point where he, he has a, um, uh, Richard Harlan has a, a, a cabin out in the woods, which they call uh, Back of the Moon, which always is weird weirded me out. Like, that's the name of your cabin? It's Back of the Moon? Like, whatever. <laughs> every time they would refer to it, I was like, wait, what are they talking about? It's like, oh, it's just, it's just a cabin. That's what rich people do. They name their properties. You know, uh, I, my uh, my estate is called this, whatever. So anyway, he's got this remote cabin. And that's where the movie opens, actually, because this whole movie, I didn't mention it, is a, is a flashback. Because it opens up with uh, Richard Harlan getting out of prison, and he's met by his attorney, Ray Collins. And I this is like a, a little thing. I love movies that feature actors from Citizen Kane. That's like one of my little things. And Ray Collins was in Citizen Kane, so I'm always happy to see somebody from Citizen Kane. And, of course, the whole setup is, well, why was... I was Richard Harland in, in prison. So anyway, we go and he, he has this cabin and he wants to take uh, Ellen with him to the cabin where he can write his next book. And she is like, oh, that's great. Until he mentions, oh, I'm going to bring my family with me, which means his younger disabled brother uh, up to the cabin. And the, the, the look that goes across Jean Tierney's face when she finds out that they're not going to be alone, you know, right then and there, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. That is, you know, okay, you want him by yourself to herself, but she looks, you know, she, she has like this, you know, death yard stare the minute she finds out that she's not going to be alone. Yeah, and then she does a, a great job throughout this movie of kind of like realizing like maybe she's tipped her hand and then like sort of all of a sudden becoming bright again. Oh, of course we want him to be there. We'll all be together and happy. But you saw that look just like later on when they get clearance to bring him to the cabin, right? Because he's at sort of like a, uh, a recovering, a rehabilitation center. Right. She's telling the she's telling the doctor, please tell my husband that we can't take him. Please, you know, we're, I don't think that we're going to be able to care for him. And he's like, no, I think that it'll do good. And then when Cornell Wilde comes in, she's like, we just got wonderful news. We can take him. You know, so uh, so she she does, I think, a relatively good job of sort of you know she wants to remain beautiful and attractive and not show this side of her. So when she tips her hand a little bit, she quickly covers up, um, which I think just makes it all that more sort of eerie and suspenseful as you watch. 
Right, because it's intentional. Like she's she's yeah. not so nuts that she doesn't know how to cover up what she's doing. Uh, and yeah. I, I love in that scene that you mentioned the doctor. It takes him way too long to figure out that she's not into it because he's like, "Oh no, it'll be fine. Don't worry." And that she's and the way she keeps arguing, and then eventually the doctor, there's the slight look on his face of like, she really seems to be okay. Like, don't you understand? This is good for him. So it even takes the doctor a while to kind of figure out that she's 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 there's something wrong with this woman. Yeah, he says, you know, at some point he realizes she wants him to say it. And he says, why don't you say this to your husband instead? But then she turns around and says, no, uh, you know, isn't this wonderful? We can take him. And you see the doctor's face who's like, oh, boy. You know, I I think he realizes that there's a lot of deception happening here. And because, of course, we know this, but the characters don't recognize it like Cornell Wilde. Again, it's it's almost Hitchcockian in that you're waiting for something dramatic to happen. And then, of course, it does. Yes, and the, that scene in question is when, because the the, men, the 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 younger brother played by Daryl Hickman, uh, he's disabled, so he needs all this therapy. And one of the things that he does uh, for therapy is he goes on swims, even though he's paralyzed from the waist down. So he goes up on these swims to, to build up his his uh, his arms and his muscle strength. And at this point, Richard Harlan, I keep going, I should say Richard, the author, he you know has no clue. That his wife has a, you know, is is got something wrong with her, and so he puts her in charge of taking the younger brother out for for a swim, and she's in a boat, and she's going to be watching after him. And this scene, this is the scene. I had never heard of this movie until Martin Scorsese mentioned it in a documentary that he had called A Personal Journey. Uh, I forget the name of the rest of it. It's like A Personal Journey with Martin Scorsese, where it's like a four-hour documentary where he just talks about his favorite films. Um, it's a really wonderful documentary. It's on YouTube in parts. So if you ever, anybody's ever interested in just hearing, it's like having a film class with the coolest professor you're ever going to have in your life. It's Martin <laughs> Scorsese just talking to you about movies. And he features this scene where uh, Harland is out gathering wood or something. He's nowhere around. And she's in this boat. And uh, Danny, the brother, is swimming. And he starts complaining. He's like, boy, the water's awfully cold. And she has these sunglasses on, so you can't see her face. And she's like, don't worry, you'll be okay. And the, the, the sort of the flat way she talks is really creepy because he's clearly uncomfortable and she's not giving in. And then he talks about, oh, I ate too much, too much of a lunch. Uh, I'm having a cramp. And she's like, oh, you've gone so far. You don't want to stop now. And as the audience, you know what's coming. You know, you know that this kid is doomed and yet he doesn't know it. And you're just, you know, you want to like, Dude, get back in the boat. You know, what do you do? take this seriously? And then eventually, he comes saying, "He's saying I can't swim anymore. I can't." I and he starts breathing in water, and she just sits there and watches him drown. And there's this amazing shot of her face—a giant close-up of her face again in this beautiful Technicolor with these glasses, and her lips are fire engine red. And you hear him off-screen gurgle. And disappear as she watches it. And it is absolutely chilling. And Scorsese called Jean Tierney one of the greatest underrated actresses of the golden age of Hollywood. And she wasn't necessarily known for being a great actress. She was a great screen beauty. Uh, She's in The Razor's Edge, uh, the movie that we covered on the show previously. And she was in The Ghost of Mrs. Muir and some other movies. But she wasn't necessarily known as, you know, she wasn't like a Betty Davis. Somebody known for, like, being a brilliant actress. But the coldness by which she plays that scene, I think you've got to be a good actress to be able to pull that off, to not even have an iota of warmth 
on that face as she watches this kid slowly drown. That is, it is the best scene in the movie, and it is really tough to watch. Yeah, I, I'll say um, I stumbled across this on Turner Classic Movies maybe five or six years ago um, and watched it. And that whole scene, you're exactly right. The way that it plays out is just she's looking at him almost like, you know, a kid that's frying an insect with a magnifying glass. Yes. Like there's just something very, you know, um, cold and almost scientific in terms of how she's like analyzing, you know, when all of this is going to happen, she's she starts to row a little bit slower, so there's more space between the boat and him. Yes. And as you say, she keeps telling him, because he wants to prove to his brother that he's getting stronger and he can swim the whole lake. So she keeps, you know, pushing him on, right? Like, no, won't he be proud if you make it to the other side and, you know, just get a second win? And as you say, these close-ups of her, just, you know, the, the glass is just add so much right there's no warmth there at all you don't read anything in her eyes because they're covered and for me the thing is he goes under and then he comes back up for a second right like there's a second second chance for her to realize oh my gosh what am i thinking here he pops back up and is like help 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 and then she just watches him go down again and and so that's (laughs) so that's so that's when you're like oh my gosh there's really she is crazy right because she had an opportunity to to realize how horrific this is, but then just kind of let it play out. And then of course dives in the water to try to put, you know, to, to try to save him, right. To prove to her husband that, you know, um, this wasn't intentional in any way. Uh, right. Cause we so. hear him whistle. He, 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 and he starts wandering by the lake and that's when she decides, Oh, I have to fake trying to save him. And she starts screaming, you know, oh, Danny, Danny. And he's like, well, what's going on? So yeah, that's when she, she, goes into her acting mode you're right that whole scene and the first time that you see it if you have no idea that it's coming you know um i think you know it's going to happen but again there's that there's that you know when is it going to happen that you just feel that pit in your stomach growing and growing which as you say makes this far and away just like the scene in this movie um that that resonates I was reading some articles about it in preparation for this, and, and a lot of people were talking about the Technicolor because it is it's very unusual that a movie that is, you know, basically a film noir is in Technicolor. That was pretty much unheard of, and it really does give kind of a um, an unreality to the whole proceedings. Even though you would think, of course, something in color would be more real because the world in, the world is in color. But when you're when you're watching stories like this in black and white, you're kind of used to the shadows. It's that's a look you're familiar with. But to see everything in these warm, lush colors, and yet this murderous thing is happening, is really upsetting. It just it has it's a really very discordant to look at these beautiful greens and blues and yellows and the, the browns of the, the the fall leaves and whatever. And yet, and her robe is like this nice turquoise, I believe, that she's in. And yet, you know, these horrible film noir events are, are taking place and she doesn't she still manages to get away with it basically even though uh, richard starts to get a little like what's going on but even then he doesn't fully get it it's only then when she tells her sister as i mentioned Jean crane that she's pregnant uh with richard's baby and she doesn't like that and she starts calling the thing growing inside her the little beast just <laughs> like you just can't – it's so weird to see a big-time movie star talk like this in 1946. Like, it is – and when, when she first says that to the sister, Ruth, the look on Gene Crane's face is like, what is the – like, 
like she can't believe this is her sister. Like, what is the matter with you? Even though they've grown up together and she knows that her sister is, you know, off. Uh, it just she looks so horrified that her sister would talk like this. That she even she even perceives there a baby as something that's going to get between the two of them. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think what starts out is he's uh, obviously heartbroken when his brother dies. And so I think initially she's like, oh, I'll have a baby and then he'll be so devoted to us that it'll just be the, you know, the three of us. But then he invites her family over to help prepare the house and she becomes basically bedridden with this pregnancy. And as you say, she says, I hate the little beast. I wish it would die. Richard and I never needed anything else. And sometimes the truth like that is wicked. And, you're, it, you know, for the time that this was coming out, I mean, that is just absolutely, you know, crazy that they would be able to say that or get away with it. Um, and you're right that the sister sort of all along, because at one point they're at uh, the New Mexico house that uh, her family grew up in. Right. And she like races the nephews and they're like, ah, she always wins. And and the mother's always like, she's always been a little bit strange. And so the family, I think, has recognized that there's something wrong with her. Um, but, you know, not to this degree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Jean Crane is terrific. And of course, Jean Crane puts a target on her back where she starts getting chummy with Richard. Uh, and when eventually Richard finishes his new book and he dedicates it to the sister, he calls, he, he says he dedicates to the gal with the hoe, which is a reference to the sister's penchant for gardening. That causes Ellen to go really even further off the train. She basically aborts the baby by pretending, well, she doesn't pretend, she forces herself down a flight of stairs accidentally on purpose. Yeah. They talk about how, you know, this pregnancy has been hard on her and she's been bedridden. And so there are scenes of her looking out the window at her husband and her sister coming back from the stores and laughing and frolicking. And, you know, this isn't going to end well. We've already seen what she's done to the brother. And then but again, she doesn't want it to be so obvious. So she like raises the, the rug a little bit at the top of the yeah. step to pretend like she gets her foot stuck and then falls down. Yeah. Um, and then the scene right afterwards, I mean, the, the juxtaposition is perfect. There's a scene of her just laughing gaily as she's swimming in the ocean of this oceanfront property. Like, she's just lost her baby. Yeah. And, you know, the next day, two days later, she's, you know, having a grand old time in the surf, uh, you know, because she obviously hated it. And I think it's this point that you start to see the needle of the husband, you know, him realizing, you know, she's this hateful, awful creature. Yeah, when this many people start dying around you, you have to start getting a little like, wait a minute, what? You know, this can't all just be a series of accidents or whatever. This is very, very strange. And so, yeah, and she ends up, uh, Ellen ends up, uh, you know, her and and Richard get into a fight, and Richard basically says he wants to get a divorce, and Ellen extracts a revenge on Richard, which involves uh, getting revenge from beyond the grave. And that is sort of where Richard Vincent Price as Quinton, the district attorney comes back into the story. And this is the only part of this movie that I think I, I, I again, I was reading a bunch of reviews of it. And, and most of the reviews were saying, this is a great movie, except for the third act where it kind of becomes a little more typical because it becomes a courtroom drama at that point. And I don't, I don't know. How do you feel? I feel like Vincent Price. I love Vincent Price, and I, I, I absolutely love Vincent Price. But 
yeah, I feel like that 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 third section where it it's Vincent Price trying to prove that Richard was involved in the death of his wife. It feels a little a little typical of a movie at the time when the rest of this movie was very atypical. Yeah, I think Gene Tierney's presence is the, you know, the axle that this whole movie spins around. And once she's dead and we go into the courtroom and she's just not there, I think it it loses a little bit of momentum. I mean, it's genius on her part to, you know, I'm going to stick it to my sister, you know, by killing myself and making it seem as if my sister has killed me because she wants to marry my husband. <laughs> but, um, but when she's not there, I do think... Um, it loses uh, a little bit of the momentum and the, the courtroom trial itself is just a lot of, you know, did you love him? Well, or did you not love him? When did you start to love him? So it's not as if um, there's a lot of drama portrayed within that scene. I don't know how better to say it. Yeah. And Vincent, the, the Vincent Price as Quentin is so over the kind of the top as a prosecutor that, you know, I think you're kind of like, oh, come on, would he really be able to get away with talking like this? Like he's, totally putting words in the mouth of the people that are testifying. And it's a little like, yeah, I mean, come on. And I think you're right. I think that's really a good way of, um, of thinking about it. The Jean Tierney is so amazing in this movie that when she exits, the movie just can't help but lose something because Cornell Wilde, I, I don't have a ton of familiarity with him as an actor. I've only seen a couple of movies he's, he's been in. He's good in this role. I think he's probably even like very good, but the character he plays has this kind of, genial cluelessness that is kind of like when he becomes your main character it does lose something because he is you know through this whole movie he can't see what's happening right in front of his face and that might have been on purpose it might have been how i mean this movie is based on a um a book by an author named ben ames williams and so maybe that's how it is in the book and that's just how they were how they wrote it but his richard harland is just kind of a doofus in a lot of ways it's a little hard to kind of get behind him as a character because you you know what's going on and he doesn't and it's a little frustrating so yeah once once gene tierney's out of the movie it's you're you're stuck with him and he's just not the most compelling lead character yeah and he um i think even if he's oblivious to it he almost seems to stoke the fire of her jealousy you know her family warns him throughout like she loved her father an awful lot she's probably going to love you an awful lot too uh, so, you, you know, just be aware of that. And he kind of seems oblivious to it. And then the mother actually tells him, don't dedicate your next novel to me or to Ruth. You know, you better dedicate all of the rest of your novels to Ellen or or she's going to go crazy. And and he's like, you know, what do you mean by that? And then, of course, you know, it's the girl with the hoe. And uh uh, which, as you say, perfectly, you know, puts a target on her back. And he, you know. At least at the very beginning of this movie, he gives this little speech about how he's very impetuous in his life. You know, I was walking on the dock. I saw a steamship and I said, I'm going to work on a steamship for a year. So I got on that steamship and then I wanted to be a painter in Paris. And I decided, no, I'm going to be an author. And that was it. I became an author. So you can at least understand how he would do something like I've known this woman for three days. Let mm. me let me say yes when she proposes to me. Um, Another unusual thing for a 1946 movie. Uh, totally. Um, because throughout the movie, you get the sense that he's a much better fit with the sister, right? Like, she wants to till the earth, right? That's why he calls her, you know, uh, the girl with the hoe, because she wants to plant wildflowers on the estate. And he likes this rustic 
you know, back of the moon cabin where you have to fish and fend for yourselves. And, um, and Ellen just seems way too high class for that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I think it, it, it is, you can understand why he would dive right in because he's an impetuous person and it's Gene Tierney, but he doesn't pick up any of the clues, even when they're basically told to him. So it's just hard. It's hard for, to, you know, to look at him and say, dude, how did you not recognize this was going to happen? Yeah. Now, do you, did you get the sense? I, this is not in the text of the movie at all. Maybe it's in the book. I have I have no idea. But she is so dedicated. Ellen is so dedicated to the father. I mean, she worships the father, who we never see. Uh, do you get the sense that there is, I don't know, like, what, was there some other, like, is there some abuse in their relationship? Because what, like, she is dedicated to him in a, pathological level and i almost wonder is that because something went wrong you know he was doing something to her that you know the movie can't ever speak to because and i don't mean to say that anyone who's that dedicated but i would i would argue that if you're that pathologically connected to somebody something went wrong in that other previous relationship that caused you to not be able to accurately perceive of how it is to go through life you know i mean like you're so dedicated to this person that you need to marry someone who looks like them. And then like whatever her obsession is with the father, she just transfers it over to Richard. Yeah. I've always wondered that because it's hard, as you say, you know, there's subtext that could be mined there. You know, she says, you know, father wanted his ashes spread in New Mexico because he loved it. And of course that means that I loved it, but mother hated it. And then the mother says she loved her father too much. And so you say, boy, that's kind of like maybe people sort of realize what was going on. And then at their house, you know, when the baby is coming, they try to change the father's lab where all of these chemicals are to the baby's nursery. So they're like, oh, we cleared out all this stuff. This is going to be where the baby is. And I think that just infuriates her even more, right? I didn't want you to touch anything because I wanted to remember this perfectly the way this was with father. Um, so I do, I mean, I guess they couldn't say it back then, but I do think there was, there was something uh, icky <laughs> happening yeah. between the two of them. Right, and that's clearly not the relationship that the father had with Ruth because Jean Crane seems very stable. Like you know, she, she her and Ellen could not be diff- could not be more different in terms of their how they sort of their personas because because Ruth seems relatively strange, you know, decent, normal, level-headed person, and you kind of wonder how she survived being to the, being the little sister of this psychopath. Yeah, and I think they do a good job of of contrasting them because. You know, that scene where she's planting the wildflowers, she's got dirt all over her face, right? And you never see Jean Tierney with one hair out of place. No. And then at the cabin at some point, they're singing, like, campfire songs with, like, the local wilderness guy. And, you know, the sister is right there joining in. And then Ellen comes in and is like, what the hell's going on here? So they do separate them very nicely uh, uh, so that you can contrast them. Yeah, now, in terms of, like, when I first saw this movie, uh, I mean, it, to me, the immediate, it's, again, I haven't read the book, it seems like it's just sort of a potboiler, you know, it's just a film noir potboiler, and, and, you know, the ultimate, you know, message of this movie is, you know, what, just bitches be crazy? I mean, that seems like it immediately <laughs> is kind of what it's about. But but then I think about it a little more, and I, I wonder if the, the theme of it really isn't how much someone's beauty can blind you to the things that you should be seeing right in front of you, you know, because Cornell Wilde has multiple chances and other people have multiple chances 
to send up the warning signals, and no one does. And that is, and, and is that because she's played by Jean Tierney, and Jean Tierney was so impossibly gorgeous? She doesn't look. I mean, she later married Oleg Cassini, the the fashion designer. I mean, she was just the one of the most stunning people ever to walk the earth. And I wonder, would this movie work if you had cast, you know, Betty Davis, someone who wasn't, you know, a fashion model looking person? It wouldn't have the same, you know, we've uh, probably every guy has gone through that <laughs> at some point in their life where they've <laughs> been with someone who they probably shouldn't be with because you're like, you know, you weren't thinking with your brain necessarily. But I, I wonder if that isn't the ultimate theme of this movie, that it's really more about Cornell Wilde and his cluelessness than it is about how crazy Ellen is. Yeah, because as you say, the other women in the film are quite normal. So I think that that is part of it, not recognizing the danger that's in front of you. But I, you know, the other thing that I've always uh, asked myself is, is she this even more over the top because he looks so much like the father? Like, would her relationship with Vincent Price have been just a normal marriage? Uh, and that there's this other element behind everything that has kind of made her go to 11, you know? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to do, yeah. do a non-contemporary reference at the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because in the end, you know, as you see, you know, the movie starts with him having just gotten out of jail, and it turns out he gets two years in jail for aiding and abetting because right. he knew that she uh, let Danny drown and he didn't say anything. And he ends up heading back up to Back of the Moon where Ruth is waiting for him, and you hope that there's a happy ending for you know, all the members involved in this story because uh, it looks like he's going to end up with her instead. On the one hand, you know, I mean, he clearly loves Ruth and that's great. But on the other hand, I think I'd want to stay away from that family as much as possible after all <laughs> no. that. I think I'd be I'm like, with... I'm good. I'm with you. Like, what are you going to talk about? Hey, remember that time she fell down the stairs? Yeah. You know, that was I mean, like, what are you going to, what are you going to say at holidays? Yeah, right? seriously. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what that's, it's very strange. Yeah, very, very, and Vincent, it gets so funny that Vincent Price's character is still clearly so in love with Ellen. Cause you're like, dude, you dodged a bullet, man. And like you just <laughs> said, it could be that, that she would have been just normal with him, but I don't know. I mean, I would think, you know, she's going to chew you up and spit you out, buddy. You know, uh, you're lucky you got away with, you know, you're lucky that she dumped you. Yeah, I, I, uh, I agree. I think, uh, maybe I'm blinded by her beauty that I'm hoping that in another relationship, she'd be fine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We'll give her another chance. It's still good. It's still good. Yeah. Uh, this, this movie, this movie was nominated for several Oscars in one, one, which was for best cinematography in color. Leon Shamroy, good picking. Uh, Academy, because this movie absolutely deserves it. It is sumptuous to look at. It is absolutely stunning. Um, fun fact about this movie is that I saw scenes from this movie before I knew what I was seeing. And what I mean is, in season three of MASH, there is an episode. It all comes back to MASH. Like Michael Bailey. It all comes back to Superman. For me, it all comes back to MASH. Uh, there's a season three episode of MASH uh, where Hawkeye punches Frank, and he is put under house arrest. And so which means he can't leave his tent. And instead of uh, him really suffering, the entire camp, because they love Hawkeye, decide to go to the swamp and give Hawkeye everything he wants, but just do it inside the swamp. That way he can still stay uh, inside the swamp and still be under house arrest. And they run a movie in the tent, in the swamp. And the movie they run is Leave Her to Heaven. Uh, and the weird thing is the, the version that they watch is in black and white. I guess the army maybe got black and white prints that they didn't get color prints of movies. But 
I never knew what that movie was. Every time I've seen, I've seen that episode with like every other mash, I've seen it a thousand times. And the whole bit there is that Hawkeye loves Jean Tierney. He talks about how gorgeous she is, and he's completely in love with Jean Tierney. And the, there's literal like 30 second clips of Leave Her to Heaven in this episode of Mash. And then later on, when I saw the Martin Scorsese documentary, and he was talking about Leave Her to Heaven, I didn't know that that was the same movie because I was like, well, the movie I'm looking at is in color, and the movie in Mash is in black and white. And then I did later, oh, and then I, when I finally saw the whole movie, I think, oh, this is literally that movie. So they must have just had a black and white version. But so that's you know that seems like an odd movie to send to the troops in the, in the, during the <laughs> Korean Wars to send them this really grim film noir. But you know, to, so at least the the staff of Four Seven Seventh got to see Liver to Heaven. <laughs> yeah, they probably liked it more than what's the other movie? The Moon is Blue. Is the that Moon the is other Blue? Film yeah, the, yeah, the, the Otto Preminger <laughs> movie. Yeah, that's that's a, worth another whole episode of the podcast at some point. We'll talk about the Moon is Blue. So yeah, this is a really, really uh, terrific movie. It kind of almost makes me want to read the book because I'm just sort of interested of what the differences are. Uh, fun fact about Ben Williams, Ben Ames Williams, he died in 1953 after suffering a heart attack while participating in a curling contest. So, <laughs> so make a, I don't mean to laugh, but make of that of what you will. That was a that was a too good of a fun fact to pass up. So John Stahl, the director. This he had done a lot of movies in the 30s and 40s. This, uh, I mean, your your mileage may vary. I, his, his films after this include The Foxes of Harrow, The Walls of Jericho, something called Father Was a Fullback. That sounds like a fun movie. Uh, this is really his last hurrah, I would say, as a as a making a big time film. This was really his last critically acclaimed thing. He worked with Cornell Wilde one more time in a movie called Forever Amber. I don't think he ever worked with Gene Tierney again. Gene Tierney unfortunately, had kind of a difficult life. She suffered from depression and subjected herself to electric shock therapy in the 50s as her career started to sort of wind down. So she had a really rough life. And it's, it's, it's a shame because, you know, she was a tremendous actress. And we mentioned that she was in The Razor's Edge and some other great movies. And so, but uh, she, she kind of had, you know, not a, not, a, not a typical great Hollywood life. Although she lived on all the way into the 2000s. Uh, and she lived to be fairly old, and she ended up, I think her last film, last TV credit is uh, the miniseries Scruples from, like, 1982. So she kept working uh, on and on. But, uh, you know, this again, this was one of her last hurrahs as well. This is really, for a lot of these actors, this is their great moment. This is because this is such a tremendous movie. Yeah, she's, you know, I think of her in three movies. This one, uh, The Razor's Edge and Laura. Um, oh, sort Laura, of the with, also with that... Vincent Price. Also with Vincent Price, and of course, um, uh, oh, who's the guy who I think is totally awful oh, uh, in The Razor's uh, Edge? Uh, uh, Clifton Webb. You hate Clifton, Clifton Webb. Webb. <laughs> is, is in Laura as well, um, and in all of those movies, like in this one, she's evil. I think in The Razor's Edge, she's just kind of misguided. I mean, she's not a nice person based upon everything she does to Anne Baxter, um, but I don't think that uh, she's horrible. Um, and then in Laura, she just kind of plays like a socialite. Um, right. I would have no chance with her in any of these movies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, would anybody? I mean, good lord! I mean, look at her. I mean, she's just un- unbelievable. Now she's in another movie that uh, I'm, I forget who it was. Somebody on the the comments over on the website firewaterpodcast.com talked about other Gene Tierney movies, and one of them was Where the Sidewalk Ends, which he is in with Dana Andrews. So maybe we'll have to. Uh, I'll cover that one on the show as well because again, it's it's Gene Tierney and that's always fun to talk about. Like I said, so this is so this is a super movie. Even though we've given away all the plot, 
you should absolutely track it down. Unfortunately, it's a little hard to get. It's not on iTunes, uh, and it is out of print on DVD. You can get it uh, used, but it is not something that's sort of continually in print. But if you can, if you can get it, you can. I bought it used, uh, used DVD for like eight dollars or something. It's completely worth it. It is a superb movie and uh, Ange, I got thank you so much for for wanting to talk about it because this was not this would not be something I would normally think to to cover on the show. Yeah, I'll just echo echo that I would absolutely recommend this to everybody and anybody because it is such a suspenseful movie and as you say the beauty of the film, you know, with this, you know, mountainside cabin and beachside property in the New Mexico Mesa um all are just so lush that it just adds to her beauty which of course is one of the themes we've talked about. Yeah. Oh, that you mentioned the scene where she distributes the father's ashes and she's on horseback. That scene is so. Be- I mean, you're like, boy, she could have really killed it in westerns. She fits <laughs> for as cosmopolitan as she looked. She really would have been an amazing west you know, to be in westerns. You know, uh, it's so funny that you say that because at my notes, I'm saying, you know, she's in jodhpurs, riding on a galloping horse, throwing her father's ashes, and then in parentheses, I go, this shouldn't be hot. <laughs> See, you're just like Cornell Wilde. You know better, but you're still falling for it, Edge. See, this is what happens. When guys don't think with their brains, they get into trouble. But, uh, yeah, this is a really, really great movie. It's worth tracking down. So, Ange, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. Where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, I'm probably most active on Twitter at DrAnge70, but I also run a Supergirl blog called Comics Box Commentary. And I'm a regular participant uh, in the Legion of Super Bloggers. Good stuff. And, of course, you want to find this show. It's over on Twitter at Film and Water Pod. And you can find this and all our other great shows over on our network site, which is firingwaterpodcast.com. So, again, Ange, thanks for coming back on, man. I always enjoy talking to you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I always love talking about movies like this. All right. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Until next week, that's a wrap. Drink up for tomorrow we die. If I drink too much, I'll get hot flashes. We'll take pictures. Will you marry me? Why, you unpredictable little... Ma- <laughs> what, 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 what? Cornell Wilde just kissed Gene Tierney. On the teeth? Right smack on. If he straightens out that overbite, I'll kill him. 